Romans chapter 5. Paul spends the first two and a half chapters of the book of Romans detailing our sin, detailing the failings of the culture in chapter 1, detailing the failure of religion in chapter 2, and then in chapter 3 he comes to this climax where he says there are none righteous, no not one. And then finally in the middle of chapter 3 he begins this discourse on the doctrine of justification, that when Jesus dies for us, when Jesus lives an obedient life for us, that that is given to us, it's called imputation, where it is just as if I had never sinned and just as if I had always obeyed. And then in chapter 4, Paul talks about Abraham, this man who, by faith, he was justified. He was a man who relied on the Lord. He, he and his wife Sarah were promised a baby, and they were older, and it was impossible with man. But eventually, God blessed them. And so you would think that when Paul gets to Romans chapter 5, that he would start giving us a list of things to do. He's already spoken about our sin. He's already spoken about the gospel of Jesus Christ in the end of chapter 3 and chapter 4. So you would think that he would get on to more important things in chapter 5. But instead of giving us a to-do list or moving past the gospel and on to more practical, greater things, Paul says that now is the time to rejoice. Romans 5, verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God, through our Lord Jesus Christ, through him, we also have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare to even die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Paul starts verse 3 with three words, not only that. What is he speaking of? Not only what? Not only what we saw last week. Not only are we given this grace in which we can stand. Instead of standing in guilt, we can stand in grace. Not only do we have peace with God, 
that we are no longer at war with God, that we can have this peace between us and God because of Jesus. Not only that, but then Paul says we can also rejoice in our sufferings. I don't know about you, but that's difficult for me, rejoicing in our sufferings. But I love those three words, not only that. The gospel, again and again and again, surprises me. Not only that is added to the gospel again and again throughout the scriptures. Not only that, and what comes after is more and more grace, more favor, more of his infinite love. Not only that, I love that. And so Paul says, not only that, but we can, verse 3, 4 through 5, rejoice in our sufferings. And suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character. And character gives us hope, and this hope does not disappoint us. When we hear about suffering in the scriptures, we immediately go to the extreme cases of suffering, loss of a loved one, sickness, and we'll get there in this sermon. But there's another level of suffering that has to do with everyday life. Life is hard. Life is glorious, but it's also very difficult. Paul says that suffering, not just the big things, but the everyday life of suffering. Jesus said, take up your cross and follow me. That this suffering produces endurance, endurance character. The sense of the word character there is an integrity of character. That there's integrity. We throw around those words a lot. Godly character, integrity, things like that. But what does it even mean? What does the word integrity mean? It means a oneness. It comes from the word integer, which is a whole number. It's not a fraction of a number. It's a, a wholeness, a oneness. An integrity of character is a oneness of character. That suffering produces this character that is undivided in our lives. We all have our public personas. What people see when we're with lots of people. So there is that version of us. And then if you zoom in a little bit more, I've said this before, you have the version of us where we're around a group of friends. Zoom in a little bit more and you see us with our family. Zoom in a little bit more perhaps with our spouse. And then zoom in all the way and you see us in private when no one is looking, when no one will know. What Paul is saying here is that this character, this integrity of character, this oneness of character, that from the point where everyone can see what you're doing all the way to where no one can see what you're doing, that there is a oneness of character all the way through those phases. That is what the gospel produces. You know, the everyday kind of suffering that we're speaking of right now is usually caused by people, isn't it? Our suffering, you know, many times we say if there just weren't, if everyone was just like me, you know, the world would be a better place. And so many times our suffering is produced by people in our lives, usually exclusively by coworkers, by family, by friends. Some of you are in conflict right now with your parents. 
Some of you are in conflict with a sibling or with a spouse or with a child or whatever. And suffering is caused through the words that they say, the words that you say, the things that they do, the motives that they that they import to you. And we can suffer when we're attacked and we can't defend ourselves. Or even if we do defend ourselves, it doesn't really do any good. This produces character. This suffering that comes in the form of relationships. But do the words in our hearts have a oneness with the words that we speak when it comes to this kind of suffering, when it comes to these relationships, when it comes to conflict that we all face? Is there a oneness between the two? Between what's in our heart and what we say, what we do, our actions? We don't realize that we have this issue with a oneness of character, with integrity in suffering, because many times we hold our tongues. And many times we become more and more disciplined where we know it's just not worth it to enter into a conflict. It's just not worth it to defend myself. It's just not worthwhile. And you become disciplined and so you hold it in. And we convince ourselves that somehow we're pulling it off when we do that. But so much of our sin and consequently our brokenness and unhappiness is rooted in the heart. It's rooted in the words we may never say in response to the suffering that other people cause us. But for the most part, these words live inside of us. You know, for instance, someone betrays you and acts like they're your friend and they dump you once they're done using you. And they're shameless about it. Maybe they put something up on Facebook or social media and you see it and you know they're talking about you. You just wish they would just, you know, tag you in the post because it's all about you and everybody knows it. Or worse, some of your common friends, maybe they don't know what's going on and you just want to scream and you want to defend yourself. And this slight, it's not that big of a deal when compared to the suffering in the world, but it still bothers you. It still bothers me. You well up inside. You want to lash out, but you don't. It's good that you don't lash out. It's better not to lash out. It may even be a victory that you didn't lash out, but it's not integrity of character. You know, that brokenness, that sin of the heart could actually be less healthy than if you just let it out. So the suffering that people in your life produce in the everyday stuff of life, you know, doctors will tell you that it's the internal injuries, it's the internal organs, it's what's going on inside of you that causes the most health problems. My prayer is that when the daily stuff of life, listen, because we can become disciplined with the things we say. We can pick and choose our moments very carefully. We can be very careful with our actions. But when the suffering of life comes in the form of relationships and conflict 
or a situation happens where it's going to cause some suffering, not a lot of suffering, but the everyday kind of suffering that just drapes on you, the death by paper cuts type of suffering. You know, when, when that comes, my prayer is not only that I would hold my tongue, not only that I would do the right thing, not only that if it comes in my heart that I'll tamp it down, but my prayer is that it will never enter my heart in the first place. That the sin, the wanting to lash out, wanting to defend myself, wanting to bring the inner lawyer up to bat, that it, that won't even happen. That I won't even have to tamp it down, if you know what I mean. That it won't even come into my heart. That no one will have to talk me off the ledge. Because I don't even go there. Because of my heart. You know, we talk about the gospel of grace, and many times people will say, if you preach too much grace, then people will behave however they want to behave. But it's actually the opposite, because as we preach grace, yes, that affects our externals, the words we say, our actions, but the grace goes deep into our hearts, and that's where real change happens. Just imagine if you could live a life where when the suffering comes, when people attack, when there's conflict, that you have such a, a joy, such a peace with God inside that you don't even well up inside. The gospel is so alive in you. I can't stress that enough as a lesson that I've been learning in my life and that I'm learning every day. I'm not there yet, not even close. So there's the everyday suffering, but there's also the deep personal loss, the tragic loss of a child, sickness, Paul saying, rejoice in that. I mean, are you kidding me? Paul says we can rejoice in this suffering, not for this suffering, but in it, because suffering produces endurance, endurance character, character, hope. So we can endure this kind of awful suffering because of the hope that we have in the Lord. When my brother died in 1993, the hope of heaven became palatable. I could taste heaven in some ways. Part of me was there. The veil between the temporal earth and heaven, the eternal, was thinner and thinner. I mean, you felt like a piece of you was there. That's what suffering produces. It produces hope in the glory of God. Paul says there that it, it doesn't disappoint. So many times we hope for things that end up disappointing us. We hope for a job promotion, only to get the promotion and find out it wasn't what we thought. We're single and we want to get married. Then we finally find someone and we get married, and then we want to be single again because we realize how hard marriage is. It disappoints. We hope for little, little things like our team winning a championship. And then when they finally win, you say, now what? Hope that disappoints. But Paul says, this is the only hope that doesn't disappoint. This is the hope that is sure and strong. 
Paul says elsewhere, this hope that we have in heaven is unimaginable. He says elsewhere that eye hasn't seen, ear has not heard. It's not entered into the heart of man the things that God has prepared for those who love him. That the eye can't see, the ear can't hear. We can't even imagine what he's preparing for us. It's beyond our seeing. It's beyond our hearing. It's beyond our imagining. It's beyond our five senses to comprehend. That God, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit will be there. And because of the presence of Jesus, there will be no more need for the Son itself. That he will be that light, that there will be no more night, no more crying, no more pain, no more sin, no more sinful thoughts and responses welling up inside, no more broken relationships. Paul says because of that, because of that hope that doesn't disappoint, we can even rejoice in our suffering. This is the only hope that doesn't disappoint. All of the other replacements for Jesus disappoint. All of the other replacements, all of the other idols, they make promises that they fail to deliver. They quit delivering. Whether it be politics, I mean, give me a break. That failed to deliver a long time ago. Or moralism, that disappoints. Or a God and country, a vague idea of God, that disappoints. Or the church as a country club, that disappoints. Or the church as what my preferences are, that disappoints. The only hope that doesn't disappoint is detailed in verses 6 through 11. What an amazing passage. The hope that while we were sinners... While we were adulterers and thieves and covetous and people pleasers and faithless, while we were sick and lost and had nothing to offer, while we were poor in spirit and dead in our sins, Christ died for us. That's the hope. Without him, no hope. And then he doesn't die for some of our sins but all of our sins. He doesn't give us some of his righteousness. He gives us all of his righteousness. And that hope doesn't disappoint because we will see Jesus. We will see him and be like him. That we have no lasting home here. That we are aliens here. That we are passing through. That's why Martin Luther said, I fix my heart on two days. This day that I'm in and that day when Jesus returns. I love the way Paul relates suffering right back to the gospel. Did you catch that? He talks about suffering. He talks about suffering and rejoicing in it and what it produces, and then he tells you why. He doesn't list a bunch of philosophical things or reasons why it, from an earthly perspective, that you can rejoice in suffering, you can do it, those types of things. He goes right back to the gospel. I've shared this story before, but it's worth sharing again. Horatio Spafford, he had made it. This guy made it. He's wealthy. He has a family. 
businesses, businesses booming. And then the Chicago Fire happens, 1871. He loses it all. And then his son dies. This guy's like Job. And then he get gets back on his feet and he decides that he wants to send his wife and his four daughters out of the States, away to rest, to England. So they get on an ocean liner and they begin the journey. There's an accident. And they... I mean, these are real people we're talking about. Just imagine that. I have a friend who lost a daughter who drowned. He watched it happen. And God just brought him to mind. But he decided that he would follow, and that he would go see them after he received a cable with just two words from his wife, saved alone. So she saved, the four daughters have drowned, his son first, his business, now the death of his four daughters. So Spafford set out to join his wife, and when the ship came to where the tragedy had happened, he began to write a hymn. And he penned these words, When peace like a river attends my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot you have taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. I mean, how, how do you say those words when you see the place where your daughters drown? In other words, I don't rejoice for my sufferings, I rejoice in them because my soul is still saved. My soul is still well. My life is temporary. My hope is in heaven. Every single person on planet earth who were, was on planet earth in that moment is now dead. This life is but a breath. My hope is in heaven. But what I love is that in the midst of this suffering, he writes about his own sin. I mean, who would do that in the midst of this kind of suffering? You, could, you, you couldn't blame him if he took a moment to just take the focus off of himself and just gave himself a break. But he focuses on his own sin in verse 3. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, not the part but the whole, has been nailed to the cross. I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O oh my soul. I mean, how does this verse relate? This is a statement of the gospel. Verse 3, it is well with my soul, is one of the clearest statements of the gospel in any hymn. And he states that in the context of his own sin, what does this have to do with the death of his four daughters? How does this bring any comfort? Because many times when we go through suffering like this, we believe that God is punishing us, that God is is lashing out against us because of something we have done. But this right here tells us, my sin, the bliss of this glorious thought, not in part, but the whole, has been nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. 
our sin, your sin, my sin, nailed to the cross, fully paid for. God is a just God. So if he pours out his wrath on Jesus on the cross for your sins and my sins, if Jesus paid it all truly, if it truly was finished and Jesus truly died for all of our sins, for God to require that payment from Jesus and then require that payment from us would be unjust. That would be two payments Paul says rejoice. The gospel in the midst of suffering reminds us that the price has been paid. Jesus was called the suffering servant by Isaiah the prophet. The chapters, the songs of Jesus, the suffering servant in the book of Isaiah. The whole gospel of Mark was written to show that Jesus was this suffering servant from the book of Isaiah. He's a man of sorrows. He's acquainted with your grief. He is not a high priest who cannot sympathize with us, but he's been tempted in every way, yet not unto sin. And the suffering of Jesus is a theological area of study. It's called the humiliation of Christ. This suffering of Jesus. He suffered by being born, just by being born into this world. He suffered through his life, but his suffering was most pronounced in his death. And, you know, you think about Jesus' suffering, and we talk a lot about the way that he, he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, the night that he was betrayed. I mean, he's, I have to, I mean, I have to kneel. I can't say this without kneeling. He's kneeling to his father, pleading with him. Take this cup from me. And he sweats these great drops of blood. That's the intensity of his suffering. His suffering is so intense to take on the sins of the world that he's sweating blood. What suffering? I mean, you could talk about that for a year, and then he's arrested, and then he's spat upon. His friends desert him. They deny him. They betray him. He's punched in the face. They take a crown of thorns and they put it on his head. I mean, each one of these things, they whip him until he's practically dead. They drive spikes through his wrists on the cross and through his legs. This suffering, this suffering servant. Just his thirst alone was suffering on the cross. Psalm 22 tells us that all of his bones were out of joint. They weren't broken. They were dislocated. If you ever had a dislocated bone, you know how painful that can be. Dislocated bones. Can't breathe. Thirsty. And he's pretty much naked before the world. And so we talk a lot about that. But, you know, one of the aspects of his suffering that I know I don't focus on enough is that he was shamed. His walk from the hall of Pilate to Golgotha, where he was crucified, this was a walk of shame. We have made walks of shame into the walk a person takes when they regret a one-night stand. 
And that's not what they've been in history. Jane Shore was the mistress of Edward IV, and when Richard III deposed Edward, Jane Shore was punished by a walk of shame, by literally being naked and walking through the village with her feet bare, blood, alone. And it's one of the most humiliating things actors will tell you that even just portraying a walk of shame changes your life. Just in a movie to portray it, it's so lonely, it's so shameful. Jesus' walk was called the Via Dolorosa, that walk, that road, the way of suffering, the way of pain, the way of shame, the way of the cross, it was only 650 yards only. That's almost seven football fields. And in the entire time, he's practically dead. He's carrying his cross. He's carrying the instrument that will execute him. He's carrying the instrument of his execution. Great songs written based on this. Via Dolorosa in Jerusalem, down the Via Dolorosa in Jerusalem that day, the soldiers tried to clear the narrow street, but the crowd pressed in to see. They throw stuff at people on a walk of shame. They throw horrible things at them. You can imagine what they would throw at them. They'd yell insults. They would try to punch them. These walks of shame. A man condemned to die on Calvary. He was bleeding already from a beating. There were stripes upon his back. Here it is if you've never heard it before. He wore a crown of thorns on his head and he bore with every step the scorn of those who cried for his death. Down the Via Dolorosa called the way of suffering, like a lamb came the Messiah, Christ the King. But he chose to walk that road out of his love for you and for me. Down the Via Dolorosa, all the way to Calvary. You know what is amazing? Scripture describes that walk, the cross, as the joy set before him. Paul says to rejoice in sufferings. Paul, or Jesus, tells us to take up our crosses and follow him, not for shame, but to see him in front of us. Let's go to a time of silent prayer. And I want you to imagine in song, I want you to imagine Jesus humiliated, on that walk of shame.